Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the evening of Wednesday, the 18th of August in Seoul, but the morning of the same day on the east coast, or sorry, west coast of Canada, where I am joined by a very special guest today, Mr. Kevin Garrett. Have I pronounced your name correctly, by the way, Garrett? You have. You have, Jacko. Thank you. Okay, before we get started, I'd like to remind all of you listeners, please, to leave a review about this podcast episode wherever you can, and please share this episode with everyone you know and three people whom you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. And don't forget, we also have the NK News shop. You'll find that at nknews.org backslash shop where you can find the North Korea leadership chart, which is an organogram wall poster put together by the experts at Korea Risk Group that shows you all the different leaders in North Korea and the organizations that they fit into. All right, so my guest today, Mr. Kevin Garrett, lived in China with his wife, Julia, and children from 1984 until his deportation in 2016. That's over 30 years. He and his wife were missionaries in China and later also operated a coffee shop in Dandong, the Chinese city just across the Yalu River from the North Korean city of Shiniju. He and his wife, Julia, have co-written a book titled Two Tears on the Window, An Ordinary Canadian Couple Disappears in China. A true story. Thank you for coming on the show, Kevin. Very glad to. Thank you, Jacko. Uh, you were arrested on the 4th of August 2014 and released in September 2016 after 775 days in detention. Uh, and this week, or sorry, rather, uh, the week of the release of this podcast episode will be uh, the, the 1000th day since Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig uh, have been in detention. So we thought it was a good time to have you on and hear about your experiences uh, in captivity in China. Uh, what took you and Julia to China in the first place all those years ago in 1984 when it was still a relatively closed country? Well, uh, 1984, it was uh, we went to teach English for a year. Uh -huh. And we thought, well, that would be, you know, we can speak English. I think we could probably teach it too. You know, uh, speaking and teaching are a little bit different, of course. Yes. But uh, we went and we end, actually ended up teaching at the National University of Defense Technology. I mean, we didn't choose it. They chose right. us. So that was quite interesting. And, uh, you know, we ended up teaching there for two years. And then over those uh, 30 some odd years we're in China, we uh, worked in about seven different cities, including the last city, which was Dandong. Mm. Uh, the border of the Yalu River crossing Shiniju. Which is also where, where Michael Spavor was uh, was living for a number of years before he was picked up by the uh, the Chinese authorities. Yeah, that's what we heard. But actually, we never met each other. You know, people said he came to your coffee shop and they said, well, maybe he did. But I, we never crossed paths that I recall anyway. Right. And, and tell us about this coffee shop that you're running in Dandong in 2014 in the period leading up to your arrest. Well, we, uh, we started the coffee shop in 2008. Ran it for about six years until the day of our uh, more of an abduction than arrest, and uh, it was just it was a uh, something the Lord we really felt the Lord saying to start, and so we did. And uh, our goal was to work into North Korea through aid and different uh, avenues. But the coffee shop was a uh, you know very legitimate business, uh, very uh, 
I'm not sure I can say fruitful business, but fruitful in terms of we attracted a lot of young people. We had many, many people coming through the coffee shop and, you know, some would go off to university and they'd come back and visit the coffee shop on their way home before they went home, you know, so it became really a community place uh, for people. We would have you know, things like English corners there every Friday night, we would get easily 100, 120 people who would come and we couldn't seat that many, mm. but people would just crowd in and enjoy it. Was it a kind of uh, Christian mission work that you were doing? Yes and no, it, it was. Um, I mean, that's always our ultimate goal for whatever we do. But we wanted to do something, whatever we do, we want to do it with excellence. So we just tried to make a really good coffee shop and uh, be the light and life in that city. And we never, I would say, never preached, you know, but we always were ready to answer questions. And we always prayed people would ask questions. And uh, lo and behold, when you pray that, uh, people ask questions, lots and lots of questions. Yes, I understand that it can be quite difficult uh, for people doing religious work in China uh, to be upfront about that, because uh, mm -hmm. uh, the Chinese government does not look kindly upon any form of, uh, as you say, preaching or uh, proselytization yes. mm -hmm. or, or spreading of, of uh, religion of any sort. That's true. And we've known that since the very beginning when we first went in 1984. So we're always uh, careful mm. to let maybe we could say let our light shine wherever we went, uh, doing things that uh, would allow people to see who we were, but also realizing God will speak for himself through what we do. And we, our job is to be obedient and to go there. And so that's what we did. And through uh, whether, whether it was teaching English or studying Chinese or running a coffee shop or a consulting company or a, a training English training center, kindergarten, different. These are different things that we did over the years. Uh, we found that God spoke and we were just following through. Did you ever have Chinese uh, authorities, say the police or visa people come to you and say, listen, we think that you're doing some mission work on the side and, and we're not happy about that? Yeah, we did have that happen. And uh, one time early on, they came to us because they found some uh, material posted in a church in Canada that we did not put mm -hmm. there about what we were doing. And they came and spoke to us. So they didn't say you have to leave. They just says you can't do that anymore. So we just kind of changed our way we we're doing things and continue on for the next you know, 15, 20 years. Right. And, and at the time of your uh, abduction, as you described it, uh, mm -hmm. did you think uh, that this might have something to do with the, uh, you know, with a crackdown on missionary workers? We thought it might have something to do with us and what we were doing. We were very open with what we're doing. We didn't, you know, wave a flag and say, hey, this, look at mm -hmm. us. But we thought maybe it was because it, I didn't know that uh, Canada had arrested a Chinese spy mm. named Su Bin in Vancouver just a, a few weeks before we were abducted or taken. I had no idea that for the, actually the two years that I was detained. But we found out later. And during the interrogation phase, which was about six months long, where you're, you're kept in isolation, you're interrogated for hours a day. And um, they said, we're not interested in your Christian work. And I thought, mm. so they know about it. But they also said they're not interested. And so I thought, so why are we here? Yes, <laughs> yes. Know? And uh, so it was uh, kind of confusing for me. Uh, running the coffee shop in Dandong, did you come into contact with uh, people from North Korea who might be described as refugees? Not in the coffee shop itself, no, because that's way too public. And so people like that, we didn't come in contact with. We knew of mm -hmm. them. Uh, we helped in, in some ways but not through the coffee shop itself. Uh, had, you, uh, had either of you ever visited North Korea? Oh, yes. We'd been, uh, went on a couple of tours to start with, just to kind of get our feet wet. And then as we developed relationships with people, we were invited in to help in, in various ways.
Ah, so in, in a non-tourist capacity. Right, exactly, non-tourist, yeah. Uh, to the city of Shiniju across the river? Shiniju, uh, Pyongyang, uh, Wansan, and a couple other places that we visited as well. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know about that. Can you tell us any more about that? Well, uh, we worked through a couple of organizations there, who, and we just we help with a senior's home. We help with a, a school for the disabled. We help in a couple of orphanages. So we we're just uh, providing aid mm -hmm. and help in that way and, you know, following the rules, but also being a light in those places. And we found even doing that, people find a way to ask a question. And we saw God at work many, many times. And, uh, you know, it's not the big rallies or things like that. It's the one-on-one -on -one, uh, moments when you get a, a chance to speak to your mind or speak to someone and they have this burning question, like, is there really a God? Mm -hmm. Were these all uh, short uh, project-based trips where you only stayed there uh, a few days or a few weeks and then went back to China again? Exactly, yeah. They were just short project-based. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and you were there uh, in the capacity of sort of a, an outside aid worker, were you? Exactly, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So tell us about how it went down on the 4th of August 2014 when you were uh, abducted in Dandong. Oh, that day. Uh, I remember it very well. It's uh, very much etched in my mm. mind. So uh, normal day, uh, my wife, Julia, was doing some teaching for our staff, just kind of upgrading, you know, service, the whole idea of service in the coffee house. I was just running errands, getting ready to do uh, work on another project in North Korea and preparing some materials and things we had to do. We were invited for dinner uh, by someone we didn't know. Uh, and they want to talk about their daughter going to teach English, and pardon me, not going to teach English, going to study in Canada, mm. University of Toronto. And, the, you know, fairly normal thing that would happen. Right. People want, you know, to learn about how can my daughter go study there or something like that. Yep. So we're invited through a, a friend and to meet this third party, uh, a couple and their daughter. And we get to the restaurant, uh, very, kind of a fancy restaurant, you know, fancier than we would normally go to. And uh, the couple is there, but the daughter is not. And they said, oh, the daughter had a toothache. So I thought, mm, mm. okay. And um, we had this, you know, quite fancy meal, I thought, seafood dinner. And, uh, and as Julie and I were leaving the restaurant, you know, in China, restaurants very often have uh, private rooms. So we're in a private room. This uh, particular restaurant had four stories. So we were going down the elevator after the dinner. And um, Julie and I said to each other, it's kind of odd. There's something odd about this dinner. I don't know what it is, but there's something odd about it. Was it just the two of so you in we... the elevator at that point? Yes, just the two of us, a small elevator. And when we had come into the restaurant, there's, you know, a lobby, a reception area, and there was just one clerk there, no one mm. else. When we left, when we came down, the elevator door opened, then um, there's probably, I'm guessing, a couple of dozen people in the lobby. Mm. And uh, Julia said to me, oh, it looks like a wedding, because we saw a couple of cameras, and... Um, we should get out of the way, yeah. you know, and uh, we found out it wasn't a wedding, it was an abduction. And all those people were from the security bureau and uh, they grabbed us, separated us. And uh, actually, I didn't see Julia for probably about two months, three months after. Wow. So it's you know, quite a shock for sure. And that's when you were both taken to uh, two cells to be detained and interrogated. Yes. First taken back to the what's called the Ministry of State Security Building, mm -hmm. which, you know, we had seen the building before, but knew nothing about it, what it was. And then we were taken to what they call a black jail. And uh, in China, if you know anything about that, a black jail doesn't exist. Right. You know, technically doesn't exist, but there, there's many of them. And so this black jail was just for us. It was outside of town by about an hour or so. You know, over the six months we were there, we were interrogated, we were isolated. Uh, people didn't know where we were. 
And, uh, you know, this went on for those six months, which is in China, that's the legal limit. You can be kept in a black jail. Mm -hmm. And then we were the, the summary of those interrogations over six months. That's what follows you to court. And so after about close to eight months, I was actually charged with espionage. And uh, Julie was let, on a, let out on what they call bail pending trial. All right. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, that there was an alleged uh, Chinese spy arrested in Canada um, a couple of weeks before. Was it, what was the, the period before your arrest? About uh, a few, a few weeks. weeks yeah. uh, I'd have to look up the exact date, but it may be three, four weeks, okay. something and like this that. This is a man named mm -hmm. Su Bin. Uh, and you said yes. you were unaware of his uh, captivity, but you found that out later. At what point did you find out about his captivity or his arrest? Uh, after I was deported okay. uh, over two years later. So did your, um, at the time of arrest, you know, you, you, you were not sure what it was all about and you thought, could it be because of our religious uh, you know, connections? Uh, but they told you early on in the process, this is not what we're interested in. So did your jailers, warders, interrogators, or a court-appointed lawyer or judge, did any representative of the Chinese government hint at or tell you why you were there? Oh, yeah, they said I'm a spy. And uh, I'm thinking, like, how did they get it so wrong? Mm. Because, like, we, we were open about what we did. We didn't hide those facts. We, again, I never waved the flag. We're a Christian. We're here to you know, see people come to know Jesus, which is what we wanted. But it's not what we were pushing, you could say. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking, how, did they, how could they think we were a spy? You know, it didn't make any sense to me. But that's what they kept saying. So I didn't realize Canada had arrested Subin. Right. And so for two years, I'm kind of wondering, oh, what is all this? You know? Yeah. And for that initial six months, you say it was a day after day of eight hours of interrogation. Yes. Yeah. Hours every day. And it wasn't, uh, oh, hi, we're here for a regular interrogation. It was, you know, they would switch it up. They would say, we're coming back tonight and they wouldn't come. Or they would say, we'll be back this afternoon. And then, you know, they would come at a, a moment's notice. It was always to keep you on your on guard in a sense so you never knew what was going to happen right and uh you know yelling and screaming at you at times threatening you with execution that though all those things happened and looking back now i mean you know that you weren't there because of anything that you had done what do you make of all those hours of interrogation i mean is, isn't that just wasted time not only for you but also for your chinese interrogators or do you think that they were perhaps fishing for something hoping you you might say something that they could use to incriminate you well, I think after they realized we weren't spies, and I think they probably realized that very early on, these orders came from, from the highest levels to take us. Yeah. And because we became pawns in this political game. And uh, they were just looking for something. Because in China, they have a 99.9% .9 conviction yeah. rate. So they have to find something to charge you with and convict you with. You know, So those six months of interrogations, you know, summarized and twisted, can make you look guilty of something. Yeah, it, on a on a human level, it's hard to imagine if, as you say, you know, the the interrogators worked out pretty quickly that that you weren't actually spies, and that yet they've still got to go on, you know, for the next five and a half months, uh, yes. interrogating mm -hmm. you eight hours a day, and, and you know, you'd think at some point, you know, if I were an interrogator doing that, I'd, I'd think that I'd start to get bored, um, talk about other stuff, pass the time, and say that I was interrogating you. I don't know. I mean, how how did that did, did did things change? Did you notice a change in your interrogators? Were they the same people, in fact, going through the motions, you know, month after month for six months? Yeah, they would say things like, we're just small potatoes. You know, we're just doing our job, mm -hmm. you know, because they realize I'm not a spy, but they have to do this or else it's, you know, it's their heads that roll, right? 
So they have to find something. And they were, they were trying to minimize the, any kind of charges against me. Uh, but it, when it went back to Beijing, Beijing said, no, it has to be you know, a stronger charge right. and he has to be found guilty. So I, I saw that happening in the background as well. Uh, did they try good cop, bad cop with you? At the beginning, yes, it was. I, I describe it as kind of Jekyll and yeah. Hyde. You know, uh, one time the, uh, my main investigator is nice, the next moment he's he's yelling at you. You know, so that went on. But after uh, I would say a month, couple months, uh, that all died down, and they were more just okay. Tell us more about what's going on, and then they just were were grasping for anything that they could use uh, as material, yeah. anything they can grasp from. You know, all our years in China, who do you know? You know, even make going, making us go through all our electronics and contacts, say, who is this? Are they in China? Right. What, are they, what are they doing? You know, all those kinds of things. Did they use any physical coercion? Uh, no. No, we weren't beaten, nothing like that. I mean, the lights are on 24-7, uh, you know, those kinds of things, but not more uh, mental torture in a sense, yeah. but not physical. Were, were you um, sleeping in the same room that you were interrogated in? Yes. Yeah, I was in that room for six months. Uh, the only time I left was for a consular visit, yeah. which was uh, only every few weeks, only for 30 minutes, and you could never talk about the case. All the consular official could do was say, are they beating you? Or are they feeding you? You know, and maybe pass on messages from my family a little bit. And then the washroom I could use was down the hall. Of course, I had to always go with a guard. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's the only time I left the room. Now, I read um, about five or six years ago, I read a book by a South Korean guy who was helping North Korean uh, refugees in uh, the northeast of China. I'm not sure if it was in Dandong or if it was in Yanji or another city, but uh, he also uh, was arrested for, in this case, it was actually for that work that he was doing, you know, for helping North Koreans. Okay. Uh, yeah. And if I recall correctly, it's Kim Jong-Hwan is his name. He wrote a, a book in, in Korean that hasn't yet mm -hmm. been published in English, but uh, he talks about having to uh, sit upright, almost uh, locked in a chair in a seated position at all times, even when he wasn't being interrogated. Did that ever happen to you? Uh, no, uh, I was, well, I, was, I had to be in a chair yeah. and, uh, when I was being interrogated, yes. So I wasn't, you know, allowed to slump or things like that. So somewhat, uh, the other time I was actually strapped in a chair was when I they actually moved me to the prison. Yes. And there was a few times they still had you know, a few questions left. And then I was put in what they call a tiger chair, right. which is like a metal high chair. Yep. And uh, you're locked into that. It's very uncomfortable. Yep. And, you know, I would be in there for a few hours at a time. And it is not comfortable at all. And you say that was after your six months of initial interrogation. Is that correct? Yes. That's right. correct. Mm -hmm. So six months, you're in this sort of this black site, this black jail uh, with, you know, no yes. signs, uh, no, uh, you can't tell from outside what it is. And then after that six month period, you were moved to what the, the normal uh, holding cells in Dandong? Yeah, a detention center. So there is a not far from the airport in Dandong, there's a detention center off a, you know, not on the beat, the main beaten yeah. track, of course. And uh, I don't know exactly how many prisoners would be in there. I was told at 1.900. Oh. Uh, maybe something like that, I, I couldn't tell. Uh, and I was held in a cell there for the next 19 months. In, in my cell, there were up to 14 people in that cell. So in a very confined space, so not much room to move around. Right. And uh, so no privacy whatsoever. And again, lights on 24-7 and, and food only sometimes. Was there any exercise time when you were allowed outside into a yard? Uh, there was a, what I refer to as the cage, mm -hmm. uh, which was attached to the cell. 
which the guard had to open so you could go out is about the same size as the cell, but just nothing in it. Cement slab, two walls, and a, a kind of cage on the on the roof and then the front. So you were outdoors, yes. but there was no real exercise. You could walk around in a circle sort of thing, but that was the only exercise. Right. Um, and as you said, the lights were on 24 hours a day. Were, were uh, yes. toilet facilities in the cell or did you have to go to a different place for that? No, the toilet facilities were in the cell. So there's a sink, a shower, and a toilet, all in a small confined mm -hmm. space, uh, all with glass walls. So no privacy whatsoever. Uh, hot water only 30 minutes yeah. a day uh, if the sun was shining because it was solar. Right. And um, so yeah, so most of the time it was more cold water showering, uh, very cold water actually. Wow. So you would uh, kind of line up in quarter according to rank or uh, position in the cell in terms of what time you went in to the shower when it did come mm -hmm. on. And so that was usually sometime three, four o'clock in the afternoon. And were your uh, cellmates uh, Chinese citizens or foreigners or a mixture? No, all, all, Chinese. all Chinese. Okay, now you speak Chinese. I do. Uh, having I do. lived there for uh, 30 plus years, were you able to uh, communicate with your jailers in a human way or did they, you know, were you just a number to them? No, I could communicate with them. In the, in the detention center or prison itself, uh, you, there's more freedom because you can talk to people and you know there's not guards in your room all the time of course they're watching by camera mm. all the time so I could talk to people so I found out you know what people are charged mm -hmm. with where they came from you know things like that so it was kind of a regular uh, family is, is not quite the right word but you became a little community yeah. and you would help each other because you have to pay for your food in there sometimes people didn't have money to pay for food so you, you share and you become a, a little community. Now, does that mean you're holding on to cash in the cell? I mean, how did that work? <laughs> you're, it's on a, I guess what you call a stored value card. Okay. So people have to come to this, uh, the prison door, the prison gate, put money on your account, and then that's transferred to your card. And you're, then with your card, you can buy food. But then again, food isn't always available. Right. And who was doing that for you? Sometimes the embassy, sometimes my wife or son would do that. Right, because she'd been released after... Uh, how, That's right. How, was it the initial six-month period that she was released after? Initial six months. And then so after that, she was basically not quite house arrest, but kind of, they call it bail pending trial, but she was watched, she was followed. You know, anyone she met, friends or whoever, they were stopped and interrogated mm. Uh, so that she became, you know, quite isolated in that sense. She didn't want to get her friends in trouble. Now, we believe that uh, Michael Spavor is being held in the same detention center uh, where you were, uh, at least until he's yes. sentencing last week. Do you imagine that he mm -hmm. would be in very similar circumstances to your own? Very similar. I was told he's in uh, just down the hall from where mm -hmm. I was. So I know exactly his cell, what it's like. Probably the same number of people in the cell, unless they've changed things around. You know, as I said before, food is only served what was seventy percent of the time. So you go about a third of the time or so, you don't get food to buy. So, uh, but you can get reading material. That's something the embassy pushed for. So I believe he has books, and he's get he does get some notes from his family uh -huh. as well. But it's very isolating, very boring day to day. Now, believe it or not, you're not the first guest on the program who's been detained in the Dandong Detention Center. Mm -hmm. Uh, we okay. uh, around Christmas of uh, I think 2019, we had a, a mm -hmm. young man, an American man, um, who was uh, anonymous, just went by the name of Miles, uh, who spent I think six weeks in the detention center in Dandong after oh, wow. initially um, taking a rubber boat and 
sailing deliberately into North Korea and was arrested in North Korea, where he was first held for six months and then handed over to the Chinese, who then put him in the Dandong Detention Center. So he's done a bit of time in, in both North Korea oh, okay. and in China. Oh, wow. uh, also, a, mm -hmm. uh, uh, he was, you know, um, uh, felt that he was being led by God to go to North Korea uh, and mm -hmm. to give a message to, uh, to Kim Jong-un. Uh, you might want to listen to that podcast. It's a, th a three-parter. Okay. I, I talked to him for three hours. It was mm -hmm. a heck of a story. Wow. Okay. Uh, but yeah, he was there also um, uh, at that same detention center. Now, as I understand it, um, uh, Julia was released uh, in February 2015, as you said, uh, bail pending trial. Uh, you right. were charged in January 2016, and then you stood trial. What was that yeah. the trial process like? How long was it, and how much of the proceedings were you able to understand? Well, the, you know, I was given three days notice to the trial. It was actually April 20th, 2016. So you can imagine for all those months, I'm just waiting around what's going mm. to happen. You know, and knowing, really knowing nothing, only meeting my lawyer twice in that time. Uh, he wasn't allowed to meet me. And then... And he was a lawyer that was selected for you by the court. Is that correct? Uh, no, no. My family actually selected ah. him through uh, an American lawyer who recommended someone. So this, he was uh, a good yeah. guy, you know, from what I knew. Then I, I went to trial. I met him just before the trial. We went to trial. and uh, But the proceedings in the court were uh, strange to me. I mean, if you ever watch trials on TV, you know, it's, you know, this is, you think you have an idea what it sure. does or how it happens, but it doesn't happen the same way. So I went in and my trial was a closed trial. That means there's three judges, mm -hmm. two prosecutors, an interpreter, my lawyer, and two guards and mm -hmm. me in the room. And plus the camera watching everything, of course. Right. And so they go through your six months summary of the interrogations, charging with this and that. And then, uh, you know, the judge says you can talk now or you can't talk now. And I could never quite understand because a lot of legal terms I didn't understand mm. uh, when I could talk, when I couldn't talk. I couldn't not talk to my lawyer during the trial, which was strange. I thought, well, at least I get to figure things out. And uh, it really was uh, odd and strange for me. So to... you, you were not able to confer with your lawyer during the trial at all? No, no, okay. no. I and wasn't. was that just a one day process? It was a whole day. Yeah. It was basically kind of nine to right. five. So I was taken from the detention center somewhere around eight o'clock in the morning, uh, put in a kind of a small holding cell until the trial started at nine o'clock. And then, you know, then back to the little holding cell, which is more like a little padded closet. They put you in with a barred door mm. and they're given a little kind of a rice box sort of thing for lunch, kept in there for an hour and a half or something, or maybe two hours until the afternoon portion then uh, went back to the trial, the court courtroom, uh, same procedure, same people there again. And uh, afterwards, I was able to talk to my lawyer briefly. And he said, well, we should hear something in a few weeks. You know, he said, you know, two to four right. weeks. So knowing China, I was thinking, well, maybe four to six weeks, we'll hear something. It became almost uh, five months before I heard another ah, word. So uh, was that also including whether you were guilty or innocent? Yes. So... At the trial in April, April 20th, I, there was no verdict. Right. On September 13th, I was called suddenly out of my cell, given no notice whatsoever, and say, you're going back to, back hmm. to court. And, you know, for me, I almost, I didn't want to go. I thought, what's going on? Are they going to carry out their threat at execution? I didn't. Uh, really had that know. been threatened to you? Yes, many uh, times. So many times during the first six Who months. was the, the highest ranking person who said to you, you may be executed for this, uh, this crime of spying? The, the main investigator. Mm -hmm. So he, 
he said that n numerous okay. times. But but during your actual uh, your, your court hearing, um, that, that that was not said. Did, did the three judges say, "Look, this is what you might be facing," or or did you not know at that stage? No, didn't know anything at that stage. Yeah. But they had previously, in the first six months, yeah. said you could get you know you know six or eight years in prison. You could be executed. Wow. You could be sent to North Korea. What? They said as well. Which is yeah, I thought well, that's why would that be? <laughs> and and that was where you were headed anyway. The day of your arrest, you're you're planning to go we're on a trip to North Korea, right? So yeah, we're preparing preparing for the ne next project we're doing there, and so you know then September thirteenth comes along, so almost five months later, and they take me back to court. It's uh, my verdict hearing. They read this eight page verdict. They sent me to eight years. Okay, eight pages of uh, you know which I didn't understand at all. Right. But in the difference this time was in within the courtroom, yeah. there was uh, two people from the embassy, Canadian embassy. Mm. My main interrogator was also sitting at the back. Then, of course, the three judges, the two prosecutors and my lawyer yeah. were there and uh, a couple of guards as well. That they're always there. And the person from the embassy said to me, the important thing we heard after all this, because I was able to talk to him, he said, well, the important thing we heard was deportation. Mm. And basically what he said was, uh, we don't know for sure, but you could be deported as early as Thursday. And this is Tuesday right. afternoon. Now, just to clarify here, you were found guilty of spying. Is that correct? Yes, espionage spying. Right. So yeah. that eight-page uh, verdict that was that was read out was basically to confirm that, you know, uh, as a result of the investigation and the interrogation and, and presumably your confession, we've determined that you were actually a spy. That's wow. correct. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then the the uh, you had you had some time to talk to people from the embassy, and they said you've also you know got this prison sentence of of eight years, but they've also said deportation. We don't know when, but that could be as soon as this Thursday. Yes, yes. So they were also saying it could be after the sentence is completed, right. after the eight years. So you know, uh, the next morning, the embassy was able to come back to me and and confirm that there was a meeting separate from the judicial mm -hmm. system with uh, some government officials, I don't know who they were. And they said the same thing again, you could be deported as early as tomorrow morning. So this was Wednesday morning. And so they said Thursday morning could be deported, but we don't know for sure. And what they're saying is until you get on the plane, we yeah. won't know. Uh, uh, between, so during that period there of, of uncertainty, uh, when you thought you might have to actually sit out uh, an eight year prison sentence, were you transferred to another facility for your post-trial sentence? Is that how it works in China? No, no. Back to the exact same facility. Um, so I went back to the detention center, back to my yep. cell, and uh, and waiting there again. Okay. So, and what happened the, on the second day after my verdict hearing was they they came and they made me sign some papers. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, this is looking a little bit more hopeful, but I'm still not trusting anything or anyone and uh made me you know agree that i wouldn't appeal and uh, agree you know don't talk to any reporters and you know go home and be nice sort of yeah. thing and and it's interesting because someone said to me one of the government officials canadian government officials said to me you know they'll probably make you sign some papers mm -hmm. and he said i would just sign them and not worry about them till right. later so when they brought that thing about not appealing i thought hmm should i sign it or should i not because Basically, you're kind of agreeing that you're yeah. guilty, which I wasn't, you know, you're nowhere near a spy. So, but that came back to mind what he said. And I said, okay, I'm just going to sign it. I'm not going to worry yeah. about it. So I did. And then, you know, I, if I hadn't have signed it, if I, if I wanted to appeal, mm -hmm. um, I may still be. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And then 36 hours after your sentencing, you were in fact put on a plane and deported back to Canada. 
Yes, yes. So the very early the next morning, about 5, 5.30 in the morning, they came to get me. Uh, they take me in a three-car convoy with about a dozen security people to the main airport, which was Shenyang. Mm -hmm. That's the closest international airport. Uh, I was put on a plane to Japan, to Tokyo, the very last passenger to get on a plane. And uh, they wanted to actually come on the plane and seat me, mm. but uh, international rules don't allow oh. that. So they made me take a picture at the door as I was getting on. And when I got on the plane, then the, the, my American lawyer and uh, someone from the embassy were there. The, the main consular official was there. And so, and I was just in shock because I, I'm still not quite believing and I'm really here. Yeah. And uh, so it was a tremendous feeling uh, after taking off and getting out of Chinese airspace. And I felt like, I think I can relax a bit right. now. And then you went, you went back to Canada and you finally heard about this man, Su Bin, who um, you, you believe he, his arrest precipitated your own arrest. Exactly, it exactly did. Um, and uh, they, they took us because we became the pawns to trade, mm. right? That's what they wanted. You know, you give us back Subin and we'll give you Kevin and Julia back. And uh, of course that didn't happen. And of course the same thing is happening with the two mm. Michaels, Michael Spavar, Michael Kovrig, exactly the same thing. I mean, we all know it's referred to as hostage diplomacy and that's basically what China has been doing. Well, let's yeah, let's recap that. So last week, uh, Michael Spavor was given an 11-year sentence. Uh, his trial was on March 19th. Um, unlike mm -hmm. your uh, process that was took a whole day, his, I understand, lasted just two hours. Uh, and then similar to right. your case, there was no verdict, no sentence, uh, or, or, date, mm -hmm. or announcement of a subsequent hearing date. He was just taken back to the detention center. And then on August 11th, he was brought to court again and was declared guilty uh, of either the same or very similar uh, charges. I think stealing uh, state secrets and passing them on to outside yes. parties mm -hmm. and was given an 11 year sentence and also deportation, uh, which, of course, raised yes. the question, well, when will he be deported? Mm -hmm. Will that be, you know, um, immediately in, as in your case or at some stage afterwards now? Uh, so far in the week since, uh, he's not yet been deported. Did you initially believe that the same might happen to Michael Spavor as happened to you two days after your sentence? Yes, I, I believed it. It was very much possible. And the reason I was thinking that because they don't need both Michaels there, you know, for leverage. They just need one. And I thought, well, they'll let the, the one mm -hmm. go and they'll keep the other one there as for pressure on Canada uh, until something happens with Meng Wanzhou. Right. Yes, we should talk uh, about it. Of course, her, yeah, her hearing extradition hearings are going on right mm -hmm. now and uh but uh, it now looks like china's the fate of the two michaels will go exactly along whatever happens with meng wenzhou if she's extradited they'll be put in prison uh in the formal prison and if she's not then they'll be released but in the case of subin i mean he was extradited to the united states yes and and then you were you were released after that mm -hmm. he was extradited in uh, january of 2016 so i wasn't it was almost nine months later before I was actually released. Deported. Right. Okay. But why do you think it was that, uh, I mean, it's, it's, of course, it's hard to speculate on these things, but I mean, are you just lucky that you weren't um, ultimately made to sit out that eight year sentence, given that Subin was actually deported to the United States? I, I think there's a couple of things that went on. One is, you know, they lost the leverage. Once he was extradited to the U S then there's no, there's no way to trade, you know, we're Canadian. He's now in the American hands. There's nothing they can mm -hmm. do. So they're trying to figure out what do we do with these two yeah. people, you know, especially with me because I'm in the prison. And I think the other thing is they have to decide, do they want to make an example of me or do they want to, you know, be, show their nice side and say, well, let yeah. him go. Well, in the end, 
it was pressure from a lot of media and you know because every time there was a press conference between china and canada for whatever it was whether it was for trade or whatever it was uh the question about uh me came right up. and i think that became irritating i think to mm. china uh, i think now what's happened is china's kind of back is up more uh meng wenzhou is a much bigger fish mm. right her, her father's uh, the, the founder of huawei which is a uh one of China's biggest yes. companies and also a, a former general of the, the People's Liberation Army. I, I think I'm correct yes. in that. Yes, yeah, I believe so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Su Bin is not, wasn't as big. He was a kind of a hired spy, mm -hmm. you could say. And uh, Meng Wenzhou is much bigger. Now, uh, yeah, we, we should also talk about uh, the case of Michael Kovrig because uh, there are two Canadian mm -hmm. Michaels and Michael Kovrig uh, was also arrested on December 10th, uh, yes. 2018, almost uh, exactly a week after the uh, arrest of Meng Wanzhou in uh, in Canada, uh, and Michael, also a Canadian, also being charged with uh, stealing Chinese national secrets and um, uh, so some sort of espionage related trial. But he uh, charged, but he hasn't been put on trial yet. Do you think that that's uh, to increase the leverage by keeping him sort of in reserve, as it were? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we'll probably see something happen as soon as the extradition hearings are done here with Meng Wanzhou. I think then they'll, they'll do something with Michael Kovrig. Uh, they're trying to keep, you know, something in mm -hmm. play. So they keep putting extra pressure on Canada to do something. Right. In the case of uh, Meng Wanzhou, the, uh, the extradition hearings could go on for quite a bit of time because she could appeal that uh, to, you know, to the next level of, uh, uh, right. of court. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they could, my understanding is they could go on for some months, some more right. months, you know, if, if she, which what Subin did was he denied his right to appeal. Uh -huh. So he said, no, I'll go. But he basically made a deal with the U.S. Right. So and he only served, I think, four and a half years, if I'm not mistaken, 48 months, mm. something like so, that. So as far as you understand, and, he's uh, free now. Oh, he's back in China. Uh, yeah, he's back in China. Has he ever uh, and, sent uh, you a postcard or an email or anything? <laughs> he has no. not no have, I, i've been waiting have you no. sent him a copy of your book uh, i would like yeah. to <laughs> i don't have an address during the period that you were in detention do you know what kind of actions the canadian government was taking to secure your release well i think there's a lot of talks and i think there's a lot of just like with the two michaels right now there's a lot of talks behind the scenes and negotiations behind the scenes mm. so what comes out in the press isn't all the things that are mm -hmm. going on i, I know there's a lot of different pressures put on, like even with, you know, in the public, the media kept asking questions behind the scenes, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau or whoever it was at the time kept bringing up our case. Right. So there are things going on. And I know from talking to people who, who asked those questions behind the scenes, they, they said the same thing from the former Canadian ambassador to people in business, they would ask those questions. And do you know what kind of advice the government was giving to your family during your imprisonment? Mostly to keep things quiet, mm. you know, uh, quiet action. So my family, uh, even I didn't know a lot of this that was going on. They encouraged people to write letters to the government. Uh, they said they'd never had so many letters before, you know, thousands of letters uh, kind of speaking on our behalf mm -hmm. and basically saying, you know, let my people go. And um, then there's lots of people who even wrote to the Chinese embassy, the Chinese government uh, asking for that. And just and many many people, thousands, literally thousands of people praying mm -hmm. for us. Do you think the uh, the Canadian government is giving similar advice to the families of the two Michaels at this time to keep things quiet? I think so. Yeah, and I, what I I understand and what I've seen is that uh, 
with the case of Michael Spavor, the, the family is generally quiet, mm-hmm. kind of behind the scenes. And uh, with Michael Kervig, not quite as quiet. Mm. So it, yeah, it is interesting because, uh, you know, in, in cases before where you've had uh, people, not just Canadians, but people uh, arrested and, and um, imprisoned in other countries for, for various reasons that, you know, at some point um, the families get frustrated and, and they start talking to the media. But this hasn't happened yet. We're a thousand yeah. days in. So that's that's quite remarkable, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, my understanding and my knowledge of China is that, you know, anger doesn't help. So if there's, and I know people get frustrated, I certainly understand that. And, uh, but anger, you know, you know, large shows of emotion like that just won't help the situation. What do you think can help the two Michaels? What can people, you know, their, their friends and loved ones who are not in the government, what, yeah. what's the best thing they can do? First and foremost is prayer. You know, God has the answer. Second, and, and not in any particular order, writing letters to the government, uh, sending letters to the Canadian embassy or the Chinese embassy in wherever mm-hmm. they are, uh, basically speaking on behalf of the two Michaels and, uh, you know, speaking up whenever they can, but not in anger, but in, you know, quiet action. Mm. Would it be fair to say that you ascribe your release more to heavenly causes than earthly ones? Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, the uh, prayer moves the heavens and it moves things on earth. So, you know, People would say, oh, it's the negotiation of the government. I, you know, I don't think so. I think God moved people in the government to be able to do things. And, and I think China was just getting frustrated at the point. I know it almost didn't happen from talking to someone who was very much on the inside. They said at the very last moment, it, I almost was not released. Mm. But uh, they brought up some words that a very senior official had said at a meeting that wasn't recorded, but this person had taken notes and they said, but you said mm. this. And uh, that's really what set my release in place. And what about uh, ro- another Canadian, uh, Robert Lloyd Schellenberg, who was initially given a 15-year prison sentence mm-hmm. in 2018 for methamphetamine trafficking, but that was changed to yes. execution in a one-day retrial in 2019. Do you think that he's also an example of hostage diplomacy? Absolutely. You know, I, I can't say what he did or didn't mm-hmm. do. It seems like there was something to do with drugs, of course. But his sentence, of course, does not match with what he's, he's mm. done. And so obviously that happened, right, to put pressure on Canada, you know, from 15-year sentence to execution. You know, obviously it was planned. Obviously the judicial system, political system overlap very much in China. They, they intermingle. And I saw that in small ways and large ways. And so the, his uh, sentence to be executed is strictly mm. political. Now, Canada, it's a middle power. What can Canada do when, when China does things like this? Can it negotiate its way out? I think it's difficult because really China has a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of economic power. They've done things in the last couple of years uh, because of the two Michaels, like, we're going to stop buying canola oil. We're, we don't want to buy your pork anymore. We don't, you know, putting pressure like that on which, you know, causes losses of millions and millions of dollars in Canada. So that makes it incredibly difficult. Um, on Canada, but I think we have to stand our ground. And I think every country has to stand our ground. And I think what I've also seen is that Canada has tried to rally other nations, uh, Western nations to say, hey, we can't let this happen again. We can't let hostage diplomacy you know, rule. 
we have to stand together and condemn these things together. And I've seen more of that from mm. the US and some other countries as yeah, well. The, the Washington I've Post, seen... they wrote a, an editorial about uh, the two Michaels last week. Yeah, very strong, mm -hmm. very strongly condemning that, which I thought was tremendous. But also I've seen places like Australia, countries there, they have, they're standing up to China and the influence they're trying to, to push on Australia. So I think it'll cost, but it's important that we stand up. Now, uh, you only uh, should answer this if you feel comfortable uh, answering it. Um, have you given any advice to the families of the two Michaels or to uh, Robert Schellenberg during this time? Uh, we've had contact with all, all three, and we've just tried to be an encouragement in whatever we can do and, you know, basically doing things behind the scenes with them and for them. Do you feel confident that eventually all three of them will be released? Yes, I do. I think it, it may take some time. And again, it'll probably follow uh, what happens among Wen Zhou. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't believe Robert Schellenberg will be executed. That would cause a worldwide uproar because it's so unjust. Uh, China has executed foreigners before for drug-related uh, uh, crimes, I believe, has it not? I believe so. I don't know if they've, uh, I know they've executed some, you know, maybe Chinese Americans, Chinese Canadians, I'm not mm. sure people like that because they don't recognize their new uh, citizenship right. uh, with robert schellenberg i i don't think they would execute him i really don't uh I, I certainly could be wrong on that they may just stand their ground and say no we're doing this i don't care about you and what's your feeling on what might happen to uh mong Wan Zhao? do you think that she will um you know w w will it take the united states to drop the charges against her or will she be extradited or how do you you know what, what's your prediction depends what happens this week with the extradition hearings if she if the, it's ruled that she is going to be extradited then she can appeal yeah. and then that that will keep the process going for months and months which will keep the two michaels and robert uh, schellenberg you know in china for a, a, quite a while now a bit of a political question here but i believe there's a, a general election coming up in canada quite soon yes there um, is quite soon and Despite the uh, the separation of powers under the Westminster system, if Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau were to somehow uh, release uh, Wendy Mong, um, at causing you know uh, the, the uh, reciprocal release of these three people in China, that would be quite a uh, a score for him and would help him, I imagine, to uh, to win the the election. Is is there any talk of that possibility in in Canada? Uh, I sort of think. They would like to do that, but then that just you know, convolutes things because then we don't have a separation of the government and the judicial system, which I think we really need to keep separate. You know, of course, China and some other countries have no mm. separation, but I think we want our judicial system independent. It needs to be independent and not under political influence. Would that be complete? I mean, I know you're not a legal scholar here, but do you have any idea if that would be completely unprecedented in Canadian history? Has that has such a thing never happened before? I don't think it has. I, uh, again, I don't yeah. know that, but I don't think it has. You know, the, you know, the one card that is still out there is that the Biden administration could say, well, we're going to drop the mm. charges, which means she doesn't have to be extradited among yeah. Joe, and then she can, she can go free. That could happen. So in that, there's nothing, I don't think that's a political interference. That's just saying, you know, we've decided the charges aren't worth it. Right. And does, uh, do we know whether uh, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau have uh, that kind of relationship that that, 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 you know, that could be a possibility? I, I think with the Biden administration, they have to think it's beneficial mm. to them. You know, if it's 
you know, what do we get out of this if we drop the charges, you know? And I think it's, of course, to do with Huawei, and I don't understand all the goings on there. Right. But uh, if they think it's more beneficial to drop the charges, then I think they would. Now, you and uh, Julia have co-written a book titled Two Tears on the Window, An Ordinary Canadian Couple yes. Disappears in China. Uh, what's the overarching message of that book? Hope, really. It does you hold on to hope. You know, uh, the Bible tells us we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And that's, that's what had to happen during those two years, those 775 days in captivity, mm. is that I had to hold on to hope. And it was... I remember very distinctly, very clearly getting up many mornings and say, God, we have to do this again. You have to help me again to get through this, these next 12 hours or 24 hours, whatever yeah. it was, or this next minute. It was, you know, an everyday thing, not a, you know, once in a while thing. It was every day. Well, yes. And we remember this week, uh, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, who've spent uh, a thousand days in, in Chinese captivity now, uh, people have been able to send books to them. Uh, through the Canadian mm -hmm. embassy in uh, whatever country they're in and also the foreign ministry in Ottawa. Um, but of course, those books have to be vetted by the Chinese uh, prison authorities and anything deemed sensitive or offensive to them will not get through to uh, Michael or Michael. I imagine your book might not be allowed to make it uh, through to their cells? My uh, inexperienced guess would be no, it probably wouldn't be allowed. I, I don't think I would send it. I don't think I would send the right message. Okay, you haven't tried um, to, so far then to... Uh, no. no, no, I have not tried that, no. Uh, now, you're back in Canada. Obviously, um, is it impossible for you to ever go to China again? I mean, are you on a life ban from China or have they said, you know, come back in 10 years or how does that work? Well, they basically said, you know, once the sentence is yeah. completed, then you can come back. But, you know, there'll be so much suspicion yeah. and there'll be, you know, watching us, trailing us, monitoring everything we did, that it, it probably just wouldn't be worthwhile. We couldn't really uh, meet with people. We couldn't you know, meet with friends because then they, they would have trouble. So it, in many instances, it's just not worthwhile. Right, so you, you're not planning a return any anytime soon. And, and no, that also no, would mean that no. it would be very difficult for you to travel to North Korea since, I mean, obviously now under COVID, exactly. no one can go there anyway, but uh, uh, right. even before mm -hmm. and after COVID, uh, since China is the, uh, the most convenient channel to get there that would be off off for you as well so what are you doing these days well we are still working uh kind of same kind of work just in a different mm -hmm. context so we're we're still doing things that we did before you know along the lines of humanitarian aid and things like that but more you know whatever we do it's always to shine a light at jesus and we're right now doing that in southeast asia okay well i, I want to thank you once again for coming on the show kevin garrett Thank you, Jacko. Very uh, glad to be able to be a part and share a little bit of what we went through and in, in our thoughts. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, if you already have an NK News account and if you're a think tank, business or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have questions, feedback, or guest recommendations, email us at podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Uh, thanks for listening again next time, and we look forward to the day when we can have Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig on the show. Thanks. <laughs>